So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Let's read that. Uh, if you've got a Bible, keep it open. This is the Word of God. Speaking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. I wonder if you've ever met someone who is out of touch with reality. Apparently it can happen to the best of us. Uh, there's a famous story about um, Queen Victoria who lost her beloved husband, Prince Albert, after 20 years of marriage. And she had a very strange way of dealing with her grief. Uh, even after his death, every morning, she would have a set of clothes laid out for him. And I guess initially that might have been a way for her to deal with her grief. However, she kept that practice up right until the day of her own death, 40 years later. I guess no one around her felt like they could say to her, don't you think that's a bit out of touch with reality? Uh, but then again, we're probably all a bit out of touch in some area of our lives. Um, you know, maybe like thinking that late night snack won't affect your waistline or just hoping that leak in the roof will just fix itself. We're all probably out of touch at some point in our lives. But here's the thing. We must not be out of touch with the ultimate reality. What is the ultimate reality? According to this passage, the ultimate reality is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must not be out of touch with the reality of who Jesus is and what he means uh, for our lives. And, you know, there's no better place to think about this than this passage in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This is one of the grandest descriptions of who Jesus is. Uh, and uh, it speaks about Jesus in relation to two realms. So it speaks of Jesus' relation to creation and to the church. Or as we'll see... It speaks about Jesus in relation to creation and new creation. And in both realms, the point is the same. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. He is the sovereign Lord over all. And so let's dive into this passage and get to know Jesus um, even more. So first we see that Jesus is the Lord of all creation. And that's in verses 17, uh, 15 to 17. So it begins by stating that Jesus, uh, he is the image of the invisible God. Okay, God is invisible. It says that in the Bible. You can't see God, but in Jesus, the invisible has become visible. See, if you wanted to see God in all of his glory and splendor, you only have to look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect picture of what God is like. And the reason for that is because he is God. Uh, he is the eternal son of God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus. 
And this is why Jesus could say to, to Philip in John 14, verse 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, verse 19 repeats this idea with even more force. Have a look at that. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, it's not that Jesus has just a little bit of God in him, you know, maybe a bit of God's power or some of God's virtues. No, no, all the fullness of God, it says, is in Jesus. Everything God is, Jesus is. And so what we have here in this opening statement is just a little window into the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three persons. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God, but there is one God, but he exists in three persons. All persons are fully God, and it's the Son, God the Son, who took on flesh, entered into our world, and has revealed God to us. He is the image of the invisible God. But the point Paul is making here about Jesus is that because Jesus is God, then have a look at how he relates to creation. And, and Paul unpacks it in four ways. Uh, first of all, he tells us that Jesus is the ruler of all creation. That's what that phrase, the firstborn of all creation means. I mean, it might be a little bit confusing to us because when we hear the word firstborn, we immediately think uh, the first uh, person to be born in a family. And of course, lots of cults are quick to then jump onto this verse and go, aha, see, Jesus is not God. He's a created being. He's the firstborn, the first one created, they say. But that clearly cannot be what Paul means for two reasons. One is that he immediately goes on to clarify this by, by explaining that Jesus is actually the one who created all things. Everything was created by Jesus. And so if Jesus created all things, then he cannot have been created himself because he is the creator. Uh, verse 17 says that he is before all things. And so if you think about that, if he is before all things, then he himself cannot have a beginning. See, he is uncreated. He has always existed. But the other reason firstborn cannot mean the first being created is because at the time of writing, firstborn, it was just a common term to, or a common title to describe the heir of an estate. So firstborn, it refers to the status of an heir, someone who owns an estate, someone who is the ruler over an estate. And it should be pretty obvious why, because back then it was usually the oldest son uh, of the family who was the heir of the estate, but not always. And so the, the word firstborn, it just came to be used as a title for the rightful owner and ruler over an estate. And there's actually a good example of this in, uh, in the Psalm. So Psalm uh, 89 verse 27, where God says about David, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, what's significant about that is David was, he was the youngest son in the family. And yet God calls him the firstborn. Why? Because he's promising David to rule over all of the earth. The promise to, that he would be the greatest king ruling over all. And ultimately that promise is fulfilled in the king of kings, in the Lord Jesus who according to Colossians 1 verse 15, is the rightful owner and ruler of what? Of all creation. 
All creation is his inheritance. It's all his. He owns it all. And therefore, he is the ruler of all creation. The second thing, though, is that Jesus is the cause of all creation. So verse 16, it goes on to say, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Now, you notice that this sentence begins with the word for. And so this is an explaining sentence. It's explaining why Jesus is the ruler and owner of all creation. And it's because he made everything. See, he made it all. And therefore, he owns everything. It's all his by right. And that means that you were made for him. That means he owns you. Uh, he is the cause of all of creation, the creator of all things. Uh, third, though, we also see that he is the goal of all creation. See, he's the ruler, the cause. He's also the goal of all creation. So the end of verse 16 says, all things were created through him. But notice it also adds, and for him. All things were created for him. So if we ask the question, why did he create the universe? Here's the answer. He created it for himself. Everything exists for him. So everything that there exists in the whole universe, it all exists for this purpose, for Jesus. That is to bring him glory and honor. It all displays his splendor. Uh, so, you know, those tiny flowers that you see when you go on your daily walk at the moment, created by Jesus and for Jesus, or those stars millions of light years away. Why are they there? by him and for him. They were created for Jesus to display his glory. You know, the skies proclaim his handiwork. And you were created by him and for him. That's the goal of your existence. That is the purpose for your life. Why do I exist? We ask. Here's the answer. For Jesus. For his glory. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, says the catechism first question. So there's the purpose of your life, created for Jesus. That's the purpose of all things. And then fourth, Jesus is the sustainer of all creation. So verse 17, it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, hold together is a phrase that means that Jesus keeps everything existing and going. And he holds it together in the sense of keeping it all going, which means that he is actively involved in every aspect of creation. You know, in our scientific culture, when we think about how the world runs, we tend to think in terms of uh, that it just runs itself. You know, it's kind of like um, it just, the, there's a, there's, the universe is governed by natural laws uh, and our lives, everything is just kept going by natural laws as if these laws operate completely independently, as if they just operate on their own. And so lots of people think, they think, well, if there's a God, it's kind of like that, you know, when he made the world, he, you know, those old clocks that you wind up and you set aside and just leave them and they just run their course. That's how people think of the creation and God's relationship to creation. He just wound it up and let it go on its way. Or we might think that he's he a little bit more involved in that. So we tend to think of God like a manager who most of the time just sits in his office with the door shut but occasionally comes out to sort out a few problems here and there. Uh, but, you know, he's mostly distant and uninvolved. 
But see, this verse, it's actually saying, no, it's nothing like that. That God the Son, the one who created all things, he is actively keeping everything going. See, gravity only keeps working the way it's supposed to work because Jesus keeps it going. He holds it together. You know, the molecules that make up that chair that you're sitting on right now, the only reason it doesn't all just vanish and you fall on the floor is because Jesus is holding them together. That's what this verse means. And so right now, the air you breathe, the working of your lungs, your heart beating, it's all held together. It's all being sustained by Jesus, which means that our lives are completely dependent on him. If it wasn't for him, everything would cease to exist. If it wasn't for him, we would cease to exist. He is the one who sustains our lives. He is intimately involved in our lives. We are completely dependent on him, not only for our origin, but also for our continued existence. This is Jesus. And so Jesus really is the Lord of all creation. He is the cosmic king, the eternal son. And since the incarnation, fully God and fully man, ruling over all things. There is no one greater. There is no one higher. There is no higher power. Jesus is Lord over all creation. Why? Because he is the ruler, he's the creator, he's the goal, he's the sustainer. And ultimately, it's because he's God. That's who Jesus is. Everything, therefore, is his. Do you know, what's the main point of this whole passage? What is the key word that just keeps getting repeated over and over? Or the key idea? It's this word, all, every. It's all Belong, it all belongs to Jesus. It's all his. Do you know, Abraham Kuyper was a theologian in the last century, uh, also the uh, president of the Netherlands for a time. But he famously put this like this. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. No matter what aspect of creation you think about. Jesus rightfully can say, mine. This is just incredible to think about, really, because Paul wrote all of this less than 30 years since Jesus walked the earth. Do you know, many of you watching can probably remember what you were doing 30 years ago. You know, I was in year seven at school. I was delivering newspapers at 6 a.m. in the morning, earning $11 a week. And I remember that like it was yesterday. And yet, Paul, here's Paul writing these incredible statements about Jesus less than 30 years after Jesus walked the earth. In fact, verses 15 to 20, it's, it's most likely these are snippets from an early Christian hymn. And so Paul was probably quoting material that was written even earlier. What does that mean? It means that the church didn't invent the deity of Jesus in the third century like unbelievers sometimes claim. But the church has always believed in the deity of Jesus because that's who he is. He's God. And Paul knew people who personally hung out with Jesus, people who watched Jesus walk and talk and eat and sleep and saw him killed by an angry mob. That would have all been a vivid memory in their minds. It would have seemed like it just happened yesterday. And yet here is Jesus who in living memory was walking among them being now acknowledged as the ruler, the creator, 
the goal and sustainer of all things, that he is God, God in the flesh. This is, this is incredible. He really is the Lord of all creation. So that's the first thing. Second, though, we see in this passage that Jesus is not only Lord of creation, but he's Lord of the new creation. And that's in verses 18 to 20, where Paul goes on to describe Jesus in, in relation to the church. And we see that introduced there in verse 18, where Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the church is the body of Christ, uh, which means that all who make up the church are connected to Christ in this spiritual union, which is a union kind of like a body to a head or like branches to a vine. And as the head of the church, that means Jesus rules over the church. He owns it. He's the owner, the ruler, the goal, the sustainer just like he is over all of creation. But if we follow what Paul goes on to say about Jesus and his relationship to the church, we actually realize that the church isn't just one little organization within this big world that, that Jesus made. You know, as if, it's not as if Paul has gone on from talking about the world at large to now talking about one little religious department where Jesus is actually acknowledged. No, no, there's something far bigger going on in these verses because look verse 18 it goes on to say of Jesus he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to what to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross so when we read these verses we now realize that the church is, the, is really the center of the complete renewal of the whole world. Because here we see it's plainly implied that there's actually something wrong with Christ's original creation. Something desperately wrong with it. That the creation that Jesus made for himself has not operated according to its designed purpose. Uh, that it has actually been broken that it's, it's in a state of strife and disharmony, that it is actually in need of reconciliation. And we know how that has happened because we have the early chapters of Genesis. And there we know, we learn that creation was ruined by who? By humanity. Adam, as our representative on our behalf, rejected God's rule, wanted to rule himself, and as a result, he brought sin and death into the world. And so creation itself is now under a curse, thanks to the sin of humanity. It's under a curse. It's in bondage to decay, longing to be liberated, Romans 8 says. And so how can it be fixed? How can it be put back together? How can it be restored? How can sin and evil and decay and death finally be removed from creation? Well, listen to verses 19 to 20 again. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, that has to be the most incredible or well, one of the most incredible statements in the whole Bible, because this is saying that God himself, who created all things, the very one who has been rejected by his creation 
that he is the one who enters into his creation to fix what humanity broke, to bring reconciliation. This is like the author stepping into his own story to bring about a happy ending, to bring reconciliation where, where there's been this break. And how did he do it? And I think this is what is the most stunning thing. He did it by making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, just stop and think about that for a minute. <clears throat> Verse 19 says that he is God. Verse 20 says his blood was shed on a cross to make peace. Can you get your head around that? God, he's the one who pays the price. God incarnate is the one whose blood is shed to pay for our sin. This is just incredible. I mean, what, what do you say to that? You say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But do you realize it can actually be no other way? There's no other way for creation to be restored. There's no other way for us to be restored because the problem with the world is sin. That's the core problem. And the penalty for sin is eternal death. And only an eternal God can satisfy an eternal penalty and release us from the debt of sin. And see, that's what Jesus did on the cross. The eternal one died to pay an eternal price. But here's the point of this section. Because Jesus has satisfied the eternal penalty for sin, the eternal wrath of God that we deserve, because Jesus has satisfied that in his death, it's now paid for, then what happens to him? Death no longer has a hold. He rose victorious over death. And see, in his resurrection, that is actually the beginning of the new creation. That's the renewal of all things. That's what Paul means by saying that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. See, Jesus is the beginning of the renewal of all things. Sometimes people ask, if God actually cares about the world he made, then why doesn't he come and do something about all of the things that are wrong? Why doesn't he come and do something about all the pain and all the suffering and all the evil that happens? If he cares, why doesn't he intervene? And here we see that he actually has intervened. He does care and he has done something already. Jesus, who is God, has come in to deal with the core problem at the cross. And he's risen again as the beginning of putting everything back together, making all things new. And so now every single person who is engrafted into Christ, everyone who by faith is brought into Christ, who becomes his, becomes his body, his church. They're all now part of this new creation that Christ has started. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. See, you're part of the new creation. And that means that one day when Jesus comes again, what he has begun in his resurrection that will actually transform the entire universe. 
the wonder and beauty of him doing it that way of coming once to pay for sin rising again and then coming again to restore all things do you know the beauty of all that is it means that you can be included into the new creation that you can be engrafted into christ to be a part of him making all things new what a savior my god and my savior what a what a king <laughs> well finally what is the aim of all this what is the aim of jesus being who he is and doing all that he has done what is the point of it all look again at the verse end of verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent preeminent means surpassing all others preeminent means there's no one higher that he is the king overall no higher authority no higher power no one greater preeminent over all things he's the lord of all of creation and all of the new creation which means that we want to um you know sing that song oh for a thousand tongues to sing of <laughs> of my great redeemer's praise the glories of my god and king the triumphs of his grace well let's end by um, drawing out three implications for our lives and um, for our society i mean if jesus is who he is then what does that mean for us and what does that mean for our society well first if jesus is who he is it means that pluralism is out pluralism is out what is pluralism well we live in a pluralistic society which means that our society contains all kinds of different beliefs different religious beliefs different philosophical beliefs that's that's a given but this is what pluralism is pluralism is that underneath all of these different beliefs is this conviction that all beliefs are just as valid as each other and that we must accept all beliefs as just as valid as each other that's that's what pluralism is and so truth and morality in our culture is seen as a private matter something that's formed from within a, a person uh, one person's truth is as good as another it said you would have heard phrases like the only truth is the one that you make or the latest one is probably you do you uh, you must be true to yourself so it's claimed see that's pluralism it's so pervasive in our society that it's actually very easy for us to kind of get entangled in it uh, to kind of buy into that way of thinking but if jesus is who this passage says he is then the underlying conviction of pluralism is actually just plain wrong see if your truth isn't the truth if your truth isn't actually the truth about jesus then not only are you misled but you're actually out of touch with reality ultimate reality because jesus is ultimate reality he is preeminent i know that sounds very arrogant in our culture to say that everyone who is not following jesus is out of touch with reality but jesus is he actually is the reality and he's proved that how by rising from the dead do you know when um when thomas saw jesus risen from the dead what did he say he didn't say wow cool trick man no he said my lord and my god see there it is there jesus is the truth the way the truth the life no other way of coming to the father but through him see the end of pluralism
<clears throat> second though, the, the second implication then is that we shouldn't shy away from evangelism. Uh, when, when we tell our neighbours and when we tell our friends and our family members about Jesus, we're not trying to push our personal opinion on someone else. That's, that's not what evangelism is. What we're actually doing, we're helping people to find their true purpose. Because what did the passage say? Everyone created by Jesus and for Jesus. That's the purpose for everyone. And until people are reconciled through Jesus, they will never know what their true purpose is. And so the loving thing for us to do is to share the gospel, share the good news, tell people about Jesus. Do you know, a few weeks ago, uh, Jasmine was waiting in this very long line uh, for click and collect at um, Kmart. And behind her was a very chatty lady and, and they struck up a conversation. And after a while in this conversation, it became clear to Jasmine that this lady was assuming that the line that they were in was actually the line to get into the shop, to do some shopping. And uh, she was obviously oblivious to the um, rules of lockdown. Now at that point, Jasmine could have said nothing and just left this poor lady lingering in that line for another, I don't know how long it was, um, but you know, wasting a whole lot of time only to get to the end of the line and be told, no, sorry, the shop is actually shut. And uh, so the loving thing to do obviously was to let this lady know what the reality really was, which is what Jasmine uh, did. Uh, but you know, it's kind of like that with, when it comes to sharing the gospel. It's just helping people come to terms with what's real, the reality. Uh, you know, we can leave people in the line, so to speak, um, and, and let them find out the truth at the end. When they get to the end and no, sorry, the door is shut. Or we can do the loving thing and tell them now. Tell them now about Jesus. We need to say, come and meet Jesus. Come and find out the one who made you, who loves you, who has died for you to reconcile you to the Father. What good news we have. Third implication, <clears throat> if Jesus is who he is, then there, there can be no other way to live other than complete surrender to him. See, he is Lord of all. In, in everything, verse 18 says, he must be preeminent. He must be preeminent. See, no one else or nothing else can be higher than him in your life. Uh, think of it like this. In your workplace, your boss is preeminent. Okay, so what he says must happen, that's what should happen. Uh, he has final authority over all the decisions that happen in the workplace. He has authority over what you do with your time and what you don't do with your time. In that context, he is preeminent. There's no one greater. But see, as soon as you clock out and go home, and uh, go, then what happens to your boss's authority? It ends at that point. The moment you clock off, his authority ends. And so that means he can't then come around to your house after hours and start bossing you around. But see, with Jesus, there's no clocking on or clocking off. We're always under his authority because he, he is overall, preeminent overall. Everything is under his authority, under the authority of a loving king. And so that means that you cannot hold an opinion 
a relationship, a behavior, a conviction, or anything that is contrary to what Jesus wants for you. You need to be able to say to Jesus, in everything you must be preeminent. In everything in my life, Jesus, you must be preeminent. That's what we need to say. There can't be any compartments in our lives. We can't say to Jesus, you have no say over what I do with my body or you have no say over what I do with my money. There can't be any of those compartments because he is preeminent. He is overall. And and so therefore, if he is who he is, then the way to relate to him is kind of like Kuiper, that, that statement. Every square inch, every square inch of my life, Jesus, is yours. Nothing else can rival Jesus. You know, happiness, comfort, prosperity, pleasure, they're all good things. But not if they compromise your loyalty to Jesus. If you make anything other than Jesus preeminent in your life, you are living out of touch with reality. The reality of who Jesus is, because he is Lord of all. Therefore, he must be preeminent in everything. And I said, what did I say, three implications? Here's one more. (laughs) If Jesus really is Lord of all, he's in control. Don't worry about the future. Trust him. He's the, the king, the king of love. Rest in him. See, in everything, he must be preeminent.